0: Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Revelation chapter 22. We're reading verses 1 through 7. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, now, I know it's rainy I know it's a long series, but this is really good news. I promise we're going to walk through it. So this is the word of the Lord. There we go. Let's pray. Father, we do confess that your words are pure. Your words are trustworthy and true. We live in the world full of deceit and illusion, and yet you pierce that with gospel promises and gospel truth. And so we give thanks this morning for all that you have revealed and all that you have done for us, and we ask that you would lead and guide us into all truth this morning. We ask that you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. During the fall, we have maneuvered our way through the book of Revelation We've seen that it's a historical letter addressed to seven historical churches in Asia Minor. But in learning that this was written to seven historical churches, we've also seen that it was written to every church. It was written to every church in the time between the times from the death of Jesus until his final return. That the number seven is symbolic. And so in speaking to seven churches, God actually speaks to all the church universal through time. And this is important for us because this letter is not simply written to Christians then and there in the first century. And it's also not just written to a set of Christians in the future, somehow right before the return of Jesus that this letter has tremendous value for all Christians throughout the age between the resurrection and the return of Jesus. And in whatever circumstances we find our lives, whatever stage you are particularly in, whatever economic situation you find yourself, whatever political turmoil may embroil your nation, this letter is for us. It is given to guide us and direct us. It is designed to be a blessing to us. It is a complicated letter full of biblical allusions and biblical symbols, but it's written to churches in complicated times. So we've also seen that the complexity of this letter doesn't foreclose on its simple purpose, though. That yes, while complicated, we need not get lost— And today, as we come to chapter 22, we find somewhat of a summary of the letter's meaning of its intent, what God desires for us inside of the complication. Jesus says to John in verse 7 of chapter 22, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And what's interesting for us is this blessing, this beatitude that's announced at the end of the book, it corresponds to a beatitude at the very beginning of the book. If you reference back to chapter 1 in verse 3, this is what we read. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And whenever this happens in the Bible, whenever we see something at the first and at the last, this was done intentionally in order to grab our attention. They are bookends, summarizing something incredibly important for us. And so it is designed to bring us into what is communicated there, that the one who keeps and the one who hears, the one who lives into this prophecy, this teaching of this particular letter— will be blessed by God. And so by way of summary this morning, what is the prophecy? What is the teaching of this book? What is it exactly that God wants us to hear and that God wants us to keep? There's five things that I believe summarize that total message for us that we've looked at over these past 13 weeks. And so we'll look at each of those in a bit of detail. First, we've seen that salvation flows from God. It's beautifully captured for us here in chapter 22, where we have a river flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. And we're told that that river is the water of life, and those who drink of it will inherit eternal life. It's beautiful imagery for us because it announces what we have heard over and over in the songs of the heavenly multitude, that salvation belongs to God, that salvation flows from God to us, that it comes to us as a gift. And why this is so desperately important for us is that deep in the American psyche, when we think of what it means to be religious, we think, Of what it means to be good. We think of what we can do to reconcile ourselves to God. We think of what we can do to please God. We like to roll up our sleeves. We like to be industrious. We like to please. We like to accomplish. And friends, there's no message that gets contradicted more severely in the book of Revelation than that one that lives inside of us that the announcement in the book of revelation is that salvation belongs to god and it is his gift that flows to us and we find that it flows to us through the lamb the lamb who was slain whose blood was spilt and that that blood then washes our garments white that in all of our shame and all of our failures and all of our sins that we can do nothing to reconcile ourselves to this god we can do nothing but that he invites us to come and buy and eat and drink freely at his table and to participate in these benefits because of what Jesus the Lamb has done on our behalf. And so to keep the prophecy of the book of Revelation, what it means is to rejoice in this salvation freely given. It is to participate in that salvation by gratitude, to join with those heavenly multitudes who announce that the ways and works of God are just and true, that salvation belongs to him. Yes, this is what it means to understand that salvation flows from God. Keep the prophecy. Believe and trust in the Lamb and all that he's done on your behalf. Secondly, we've also learned to see the earth from a heavenly perspective. We've discussed that these Christians in the first century were enduring a great deal of turmoil. They lived in Roman cities, cities, some of them citizens, some of them not. But there was one expectation in the Roman Empire, that to be a good citizen of your city meant to participate in the economic and political life of that city, which always involved Roman ceremonies. And this meant that there was idolatrous practices that were taking place. And so the power of Rome was stamped into every piece of civic life. And it seemed that Rome controlled everything with a death grip. And many of these Christians were suffering great difficulty because of their allegiance to Jesus. And so John, in a series of visions, in his own exile, as he had been put on the Isle of Patmos was swept up into heaven. And he wasn't swept up into heaven in order to just escape the here and now to tell you that it's going to be better later. That's not the purpose of those heavenly visions. But rather the purpose of those heavenly visions is to give us a perspective from heaven on the earth. Because what John sees in heaven is behind all the political realities that embroil the earth that there is a heavenly reality that's more true. It is the reality behind all realities. And there is God seated on his throne and the lamb at his right hand. And the spirit surrounding the throne, the triune God. And the deep biblical conviction that what is true in heaven will become true upon the earth. And so, this doesn't mean that Christians are not concerned about political matters. It doesn't mean that we're indifferent. But what it does yield is a certain relativity to political matters. It means that the rulers and the politicians of the earth, that they are all stewards and that they too must answer to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth, as we read in chapter 1 Verse 8, and so what can seem all important in this life? What can seem all significant? What can seem all powerful? All of that is relativized from a heavenly perspective that Jesus rules over all the ends of the earth, that he has won the world for himself in his death and in his resurrection. And this is the prophecy And for Christians, we have the privilege of keeping it, of believing this view of reality rather than any other. And friends, move into that way of living and experience the blessing of God, knowing this approach to reality rather than any other that is on offer around you. Third, we've also seen that there's a conflict that confronts us. We learn of adversaries and opponents in the book of Revelation, and some of them take on quite a frightening shape. There are beasts and dragons and harlots, and none of them have our best interest in mind. We've seen that they're all counterfeits of the truth. That is that they appear and they dress themselves in the appearance of good things, and they seem to offer us a vision of what it means to flourish as a human being. But they have evil intentions and evil designs, and they can't deliver upon their promises. But the difficult thing for us is we've seen that the conflict is not simply out there. That for the Christian, we can't simply look at the world with a sneer, and we can't say, oh, they're the ones subject to that conflict. No, we've seen that this conflict rages inside of the churches— In chapters 2 and 3, Jesus addresses those seven historical churches, and we find that most of them were dealing with some kind of compromise with those opponents and adversaries, that the compromises were inside the people of God. Some of the churches, like the church in Ephesus, were slouching into a complacency. They had lost their first love. Others were content with a reputation for being alive, even though spiritually, in reality, they were dead. Other of the churches were in compromise. They had allowed the Roman worship to be tolerated, and they were saying it was okay to participate in the Roman shrines in order to keep up appearances and to also worship Jesus. They were presenting a syncretized version of Christianity. And friends, it is this conflict that we must appreciate, that it's real and it's powerful, that it has its seduction, that it can draw us in, and that none of us are immune to it. And so we see our incredible weakness and the dependence that we must live in as Christians. This too is part of the prophecy that to keep the prophecy is to live in that dependence and to embrace it, to acknowledge our weaknesses in order to know how to turn to God and find strength in Him. So we're confronted by the conflict. Fourth, we've also seen in this prophecy evil's defeat and also evil's final destruction. This is what's incredibly important for us in the middle of all the turmoil and the tension of human life. It's very easy in the midst of all that turmoil to miss one of the main messages of the book of Revelation. That the evil that vexes life, the curse that we experience, all the sin and death that we see, all the injustice, all the unrighteousness, that what is announced in the book of Revelation is all of that evil has been judged. It has already been condemned. It has already been defeated. It's critical for us to recognize this because in our experience of life, it can feel just the opposite. It can seem ascendant. It can seem triumphant. It can seem to be increasing in power, but the message of the book of Revelation especially as you look in chapter 5 or in chapter 12, is that in Jesus' death, and then in defeating death by rising from the dead because he was the one righteous one, that Jesus destroys the power of sin and death and evil, that he is triumphant. And so in chapter 5, there's a question asked, who's worthy to open the scroll? No one was found But yet then Jesus proceeds forward, and he takes the scroll, and then he receives praise because he was worthy. And the scroll contains the contents. And we saw as the book unfolded that the contents of the scroll was the implementation of the Lamb's victory, that his blood had already been shed. And so he was the one who could then open the scroll and begin to unfold the events that would lead to his final rule and the healing of the world. In chapter 12, we saw that the dragon desired to devour the child. The child of Israel who was to rule the nations, this was Jesus. And yet he was swept up to God. The simple story of Jesus's life in which he was taken down into death and raised and then ascended to God's right hand. And so we have evil's defeat. And so though it is still present... And we see throughout the book of Revelation that yes, defeated, that the dragon and all of his minions and all the things that are allied with him, all the ways that they appear in this life, they have been defeated and will one day be finally destroyed. And so the benefit for us is to take that in In our present circumstances, as we see the brokenness of our world around us, as we understand its sin and all of its shortcomings, that we can live in a way that we're not overwhelmed by evil. We're not overcome by it, that we don't fall into a cynicism and a pessimism because the evil of our world has been judged. And because it has been judged... It will be destroyed. It is not ultimate, and the message of God for us is the time for it is short. And finally, and perhaps most climatically here in the book of Revelation, that what this prophecy reveals to us is also God's aims, God's goals, God's purposes for us and for our world. It's been the habit of many Christians to simply think that the main purpose of God is to take his people up to heaven, to protect them there and shelter them in his presence. That's certainly part of the biblical story. But we see that if that's the only thing we have, then we've not understood fully the vision of salvation that's presented to us in the book of Revelation. Because in chapter 21, what we have is the reunion of heaven and earth, and that extends into chapter 22. That heaven and earth, once again, that they become one place, that there no longer is a veil between them, but rather God removes all the dross of human sin, all the corruption that that sin and rebellion brought into the world, and that the earth once again becomes the home of righteousness. And so dead bodies that are decayed are raised. Those who believe in Jesus are restored. We're told that they come and drink of the living waters of God. They eat from the tree of life and that there is healing for the nations. Yes, this is God's aim. This is God's goal, to heal the nations, that people from all the tribes and all the tongues of the earth, that those who believed in Jesus would be gathered here. And they would join in all those great songs of the Lamb that we find throughout the book of Revelation, ascribing salvation to God. Adam's shame and all of its impacts on you and all of its impacts on me, the craters that it's left in our world, all will be filled in. That grace will flood and overwhelm all the sadness of human life. And God will be there in full communion with you, in full communion with his people. All things restored, all things made new. And friends, in the midst of this life, in all of its tragedy, in all of its sorrow, in all of its sadness, in all the tensions and in all the turmoil, the prophecy, the teaching of the book of Revelation is saying that we must have this firm and fixed hope. Perhaps you remember the bestseller, Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. Rule number two, begin with the end in mind. And this is what's important for us, is in the Christian life, we have to begin with the end in mind. Knowing all that God has for us, And that is not just some wishing that things are going to be better. But for the Christian, this is sure and certain. And it's sure and certain for one reason. It's not a confidence we have in ourselves. It's a confidence that God has established through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And because this one man who was righteous is up from the dead, we have the great hope that all the world will be renewed that our bodies too will be raised, that this healing of the nations is a certainty because God has already defeated and judged evil and he will finally destroy it and he will make all things right. This is the message of the book of Revelation, the prophecy, and that as we hear it and as we keep it, And as that prophecy begins to shape the way that you understand your life in the world today, what God promises is that you are blessed. That is that you live in wholeness and you live in fullness. And his pledge is that these words, these words that he has spoken are trustworthy, that they are true. In a world full of illusion, in a world full of deceit, These are the things you can trust, he says. And so as we walk away from the book of Revelation, my appeal to you is don't leave it behind. There's nothing more significant, nothing more substantive, nothing more important for us to keep in heart and mind and to meditate on than what it is to be blessed through this teaching, through this prophecy. Digest it, consume it, make it your own. Don't get lost in the forest. Keep the message simple, that our God, salvation flows from him. That our God has given us a great hope, and his aim for the world is to restore it and renew it. That our God protects us in the middle of the tensions that confront us, that evil has been defeated and evil has been destroyed. This is the word of hope that we have. Hold fast to it and live in that supreme confidence that God in Jesus Christ, all his promises are yes and they are amen for you. And look to him with expectation. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for these blessed words. And in these weeks, we ask that you would meet us and you have, and so we offer our thanks to you. And we pray, God, that as we go in our Christian lives, that we not leave this behind. May we be blessed by it as we ruminate on it, as we meditate upon all that you have revealed here, complex but yet simple. And so take us into all truth, direct our lives and shape our view of the world by what we have here. We pray in Jesus' name.